Welcome, listeners. Welcome. I'm Mike. And I'm John. And this is Submarginalia. Today, we're going to be visiting a garden, one that uh, is somewhat poorly attended by the scholars that uh, make their residence therein from time to time and lay down some rocks and some plants as markers within this space. Uh, and our intent today was to pace around that garden. We can call it the Garden of Causality uh, in kind of a, a way that um, maybe outlines uh, why we want to um, make some, some marginalia, mostly for ourselves, I think, just to organize our own thoughts, but hopefully um, they will be uh, of some use to others, or at least some interest to others. Uh, and as we know, there's no better way to um, learn that you're wrong than by being wrong publicly on the internet. <laughs> um, John, I think y you had a whole bunch of um, passages written down that were kind of... Yeah, marginalia, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, uh, do, you, do you happen to have the, the Shen Kuo uh, quote handy? Because that one really struck me. Yeah, we can start there. Yeah. Um, I, I do feel like when I found that and sent it to you, that somehow this all kind of germinated from that. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I when I read it, um, well, I'll, I'll let's let's read it and yeah. see what's there. So this is from Shin Kuo. Uh, he was was he a, a Tong? Dynasty scholar. I want to say that's when he was a Song Dynasty, Song. maybe. Yeah. Okay. And he wrote a massive compendium of just everything he ever thought about, called the Dream Pool <laughs> Essays, um, while he was sequestered away in his his estate. Um, it ended up being, I guess, a pretty important like explication of Chinese science, and it ends up getting quoted like just numerous times by Needham in his magnum opus history of of science in china but anyway so the quote is about his roughly Taoist conception i guess of like things and um our attempts to like apprehend and reason about phenomena and he says those in the world who speak of the regularities underlying the phenomena seems manage to apprehend their crude traces but these regularities have their very subtle aspect, which those who rely on mathematical astronomy cannot know of. Still, even these are nothing more than traces. As for the spiritual processes described in the Yijing, or the Book of Changes, that, when they are stimulated, penetrate every situation in the realm, mere traces have nothing to do with them. The spiritual state at which foreknowledge is attained can hardly be sought through changes, of which in any case only the cruder sort are attainable. What I have called the subtlest aspect of these traces, those who discuss the celestial bodies attempt to know by depending on mathematical astronomy, but astronomy is nothing more than the outcome of conjecture. I mean, that's, that's perfect, you know, like, it's, uh, who needs Hume? <laughs> Yeah, I have always wondered to what extent if we were just like more aware of things written and talked about like prior to, to like early modernity, would it have been pretty um, 
you know, like nothing new under the sun, so to speak. I, you know, the the thing that really struck me was the references to mathematical astronomy and the sense in which, you know, whatever knowledge is generated uh, that way um, is, you know, the outcome of conjecture. So, you know, like state, he, he's, he actually gets that, you know, statements about, um, you know, astrophysical models, whatever they might be, however, you know, sophisticated or primitive they, they may, may have been, um, that those are statements about conjectures, about models, and not about reality itself, right? And, you know, I mean, this is, this is still, like, very confusing for people um, in the physical sciences today. And, you know, here you have this, this Song Dynasty scholar who's, he, he just, like, he, he knows it, right? He, he gets it. Yeah, and I was thinking about this a lot because when he talks about um, what's described in the I Ching, it, you know, we probably will have to talk about the I Ching some other time, but mm. it is interesting that I feel like what he's talking about or what you could say maybe his quote from the I Ching is talking about is like the ghaib, you know, like it's, yeah. the, it's the unseen um, which is going to come up a lot in the Islamic it, like discussions about this. Um, just in terms of like when we're talking about, like you say, astrophysical models, we're talking about something apprehensible, but then there's the unseen realm, which is, I think the Islamic kind of view of it is that it's not apprehensible you know like we can't perceive that and that's been explicitly said so in the Quran and other um, places that you know like the human soul for instance or the the subtle lordly essence um, the uh, the ruh of, of knowledge you have been given but a little in a way I think maybe we'll draw this out a bit more but it does like I think what you're saying there's a subtle but important difference between something that we can abstractly model and then like the totality of reality <laughs> so to speak. yeah for sure for sure and I, I was um, thinking along the same lines actually today I was just you know in preparation for recording this flipping through some some Nicholas Rescher that I hadn't looked at for quite some time. And one of the things that he mentioned, so this is this is in the book uh, Cognitive Harmony. So Rescher is a philosopher of science who's, um, you know, one of his interests is in completing the system, right? Like he wants a completely, you know, if, if not monolithic, then at least internally consistent view of, of reality. Like that's, I think that's a reasonable uh, summary of, of a huge program of, of research and philosophy, but um, he says, uh, so proceeding in this spirit, various schools of epistemic minimalism go about posting signposts that put all risk of engaging larger issues off limits. Such theorists turn Occam's razor into Robespierre's guillotine. Their tumbrils carry off a wide variety of victims. Sets in the philosophy of mathematics, abstracta in semantics, unobservable entities in the philosophy of physics, uh, dispositional theses in the philosophy of language, obligations that reach beyond the requisites of prudence and moral theory, and so on. So we have, uh, in particular, there are unobservable entities in the philosophy of physics. And so, you know, Rescher is talking about why we might want to go beyond the kind of 
uh, very narrow epistemic localism or minimalist type of approach that you might expect to find kind of in an undergraduate classroom where people are learning physics or biology or what have you. Um, and, you know, clearly one of the problems is that, like, we literally have no theory of the unseen or of, you know, the hidden, you know, things that are in principle um, or even even just in practice not accessible to uh, instrumental sciences, right? So if you don't have the instruments to uh, it, detect some phenomenon or detect some existent, um, uh, or it's in principle not possible for, for you to do so. I mean, it's just completely excluded from consideration. Yeah, which it would be hard to differentiate that from because you, I think like you said, with the like unseen uh, objects in physics, those are kind of the creations of conjecture based upon necessity for completing like a formal um, description, right? Yeah. And so it's not like any number of those things which have been posited and are like necessary for physics as we do it today to make sense. It's not like those are empirically justified or founded in any way. It's sort of like given some set of axioms and like these things being held to be true these other things just must be true and they're kind of like the from a process of invention maybe or creation like a creative use of a reason yeah but not but not by any means like you know apodictically certain to be real but i think kind of how it's treated because we all just tend to forget that this is the process by which these things are being laid out or built, you know? Yeah, and, and in this very constrained um, theoretical environment that uh, necessarily kind of brackets the kinds of things that get to be called real, right? So, and, and I mean, I think we should, we should probably say that like we were, I, I mean, I, I think both of us are, are realists about you know something right but <laughs> you know scientific realists uh, we maybe are not right so in other words if you're looking at a track in a cloud chamber there's a difference between saying okay something's there and like we can model it and saying that's a Cartesian point mass you know with the following characteristics that are what goes into the model um, and you know I think a lot of the problems that we kind of have both encountered in our uh, learning and investigation um, over the last few years uh, are basically about this kind of thing, right? Because it's enormously confusing um, when someone takes a model to be actually real and that's the, that's the normal uh, kind of habit or disposition that you're inculcated with if you have some kind of scientific or, you know, we can call it like frequentist uh, statistical background. You know, it's it's the, the model, you know, in, in many cases is, is just literally directly conflated uh, with reality. I think it might, might be useful here just to add, so this is, this is a rather long passage from, from uh, Edwin Jaynes, who is a very significant um, Bayesian theorist 
um, who uh, unfortunately I think he he died before you know some some of the later advancements that maybe we can we can talk about later uh, had occurred but in any case he had a very clear um, sense of, of what what goes wrong here he's concerned about you know frequentist statistics tending uh, to write off real effects that are there um, it, which is kind of interesting because the the typical obsession today is like, with avoiding overfitting um, he's kind of worried that like actually you know these uh, orthodox quote-unquote stati uh, statisticians are failing to see effects that are there so he says uh, this orthodox reluctance to see causal effects, even when they are real, has another psychological danger because it eventually becomes extrapolated into a belief in the existence of stochastic processes in which no causes at all are operative and probability itself is the only real physical phenomenon. When the search for any causal relation what whatever is deprecated and discouraged, scientific progress is brought to a standstill. Belief in the existence of stochastic processes in the real world, i.e. that the property of being stochastic rather than deterministic, is a real physical property of a process that exists independently of human information, is another example of the mind projection fallacy, attributing one's own ignorance to nature instead. The current literature of probability theory is full of claims to the effect that a Gaussian random, random process, quote unquote, is fully determined by its first and second moments. So, for just to explain there, the, so a Gaussian random process, he's saying someone is modeling a, um, uh, uh, the outcomes of some process, like for instance, population distribution of a variable like height with a, a normal distribution, right? So the typical bell curve that we're all familiar with. And so the first and second moments are the mean and the standard deviation of that um, model, of the normal model of the outcomes. Okay, so he's saying, you know, the, the literature is full of claims of people who are saying this process is defined entirely by the parameterization of the model I'm using to describe it. Right, so he says if it were made clear that this is uh, only the defining property for an abstract mathematical model, there could be no objection to this. But it is always presented in verbiage that implies that one is describing an objectively true property of a real physical process. To one who believes such a thing literally, there could be no motivation to investigate the causes more deeply than noting the first and second moments, and so the real processes at work might never be discovered. Okay, so this is this is sort of the end point. This is the collapse of this kind of uh, mentality, right? Where you know you're taking what Chen Kuo is calling like the outcomes of conjecture and saying actually these are the only real things, and because my conjectures involve random variables, uh, you know that are being simulated on a computer, the process itself is random and has no causes. <laughs> yeah. It. It is really interesting how it is like a means by which to prevent basically any discovery or understanding from taking place. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's, so it, I, I think this is something that, you know, it certainly would have been surprising to me, like, you know, 10 years ago um, as a, uh, you know, a, a younger biology graduate student with, you know, a very glib understanding of um, scientific metaphysics, right? Like we're talking, you know, I, I mean, you, you can get through a biology undergraduate program with like Wikipedia to your understanding of like what empiricism is and like what it is you're doing, right? So, 
um, you know, for me that would have been very surprising, right? Because it, it seems like, you know, and I think this is the one of the things that Brian Van Norton is kind of pushing back against in his work is, you know, we have this like a very aphoristic, like artistic kind of Chinese rendition of, uh, you know, an, an affective state rather than like a formal argument. And so it seems like mystifying in some way, like he's arguing for, um, you know, some type of like mystical experiential knowledge that's only accessible to an elite or something like that. But what, you know, it turns out that in fact he's doing is trying to prevent these people from like having a worldview that will ultimately collapse in on itself and into this kind of like causeless uh, morass of just you know, random quantum foam or whatever it is that people talk about now. Right. I think it'll be really interesting as we kind of move through some of the stuff that I've collected because it, the extent to which these questions were dealt with, I think is, has been surprising um, and how applicable I think a lot of it is to what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Um you know, because I would imagine, like, Shen Kuo, when he's talking about the processes described in the I Ching, it has to, like, song metaphysics um, is probably kind of what's being referenced there, and it's just something to the extent of, like, under the redefinition of these terms, or, like, under the semantic shift, maybe, that they underwent uh, during those times, like, the Li ends up being something like the principle is usually how it's translated Mm. and this is essentially essence or something like that it's it's kind of a difficult concept because it's monist at some point like there's lee is merely one vantage point i think they would say on basically the one thing and there's also chi which i recently encountered a translation of it as psychophysical stuff which mm-hmm. I, I think that's actually pretty good. Like someone was saying they hated it because it's not standard, but I think it does a better job of describing chi than um, just saying it's like matter or something because it's not merely matter. I think the psychic component of it is pretty important mm-hmm. when you look at a lot of the ways that chi is talked about and the various moments of the Chinese tradition. But so essentially chi and are always in some kind of action and that interaction is sort of like all of manifested existence but and I think maybe kind of what you could get out of Shin Kuo is he's saying like this is not a statement on the level of like physics so to speak or it is fit like they would have classified it as physics but they didn't understand physics like we did but I think from our point of view you know it's clearly like these are metaphysical ideas that are not somehow like you can't isolate and examine them they're like the underlying structure of how life is thought to like happen and exist or like all of the all of the world um and that that if you understand and can apprehend that then you can know the future which i guess would be the claim for like doing eging divination or whatever but you know this podcast probably has to side against that claim <laughs> well you know it's 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 an interesting one though in any case that has you know direct parallels to the kind of discourse around um causal explanation in explanation theory now right because the i mean the the only let's say like real way that we have 
um, to determine whether or not a causal explanation is any good is whether it seems to allow you to uh, predict and control a natural system. Right, so it's in some way. I mean, it's not that different from from the you know geomancer walking around, you know, with uh, various kinds of ideas about how he's going to alter, or predict or alter, you know, the flow of events or or what have you, um, you know. And in in many cases, the the you know predictive and control faculties of those explanations are not anywhere near as as sophisticated as uh, people. I think tend to assume, um, you know, certainly that's the case in, in biology where most most models are basically just like unevaluated, even just in a model comparison context, like you just looking at like, is this explanation better than another one, an alternative, a simpler one, whatever, like that rarely happens, much less, you know, some development uh, in an industrial like process control context or something like that where you know you actually are able to predict and control outcomes in some economically meaningful way right which you know it, it, like when you when you see a whole category of explanations and it's like nobody is using these to make money like pro- <laughs> probably they don't work that well i mean at, at least maybe right so we have yeah. this this kind of like we we still have this like landscape of like magicians and and you know, um, soothsayers and, and people uttering prophecy and doing different kinds of, of lot casting, right? Because I mean, a lot of the random variable stuff, I mean, is, is basically ends up being lot casting in the biblical sense, right? Like to resolve issues, to make policies, whatever. Yeah, I one of the like thoughts that really preoccupied me for a while was like, in what sense? is the modern like numerical statistical project different from astrology and is it is it different from astrology right and like how how are we to understand this stuff and i feel like um you've gotten maybe a lot closer to an answer than when i first started wondering about it Mm. this could actually be if you want we could just start talking about um we've got some opinions on astrology from uh al Ghazali. Sina, um, Ibn Taymiyyah, and then Ayamel Jaziyah. Yeah. All roughly kind of treating it within this, I feel like it's a few hundred year span between them all. Not, right. not, not too long. But kind of in, in giving their fatwa about the phenomenon, uh, a lot more is revealed, I think, about kind of how they're seeing the world. Um, so first we'll go Al-Ghazali, who writes in the Kitab al-Ilm, uh, the Book of Knowledge, which is the first book of the Giyalum al-Din, Revival of the Religious Sciences, which is sort of like his magnum opus. Um, he says in a chapter, in elucidation on the reason some knowledge is blameworthy, therefore preoccupation in the pursuit and practice of astrology and that which resembles it is a hazardous undertaking an immersion in a sea of ignorance without any benefit whatsoever. Whatever has been decreed by God will be, there is no circumventing it. This is in contrast to the pursuit of medicine. There is a great need, and in medicine the majority of proofs are based on what is observable. It is in contrast as well to the interpretation of dreams, which, though it does comprise conjecture, delves into one part of the 46 parts of prophecy, and there is no hazard in it. The third reason that knowledge may become blameworthy 
is that it is immersion in a field in which the seeker is not firmly established. This is intrinsically blameworthy, similar to learning the minute details of a discipline before its evident essentials, or the hidden before the explicit, or like inquiry into the subtleties of divine reality, for it is the philosophers and theologians who strive for these without being firmly established in them, when in fact only the prophets and the saints have become established in this knowledge in its entirety or certain of its branches. It is therefore obligatory to prevent people from inquiring into these matters and turn them to that which Paul speaks of, for in that there is sufficiency for those who would be successful. How many individuals have become immersed in the sciences to their own detriment? Had he not immersed himself therein, her circumstances, where religion is concerned, would have been superior to where he finally ended up. No one disagrees that knowledge may harm certain people in the same manner that the meat of certain birds and varieties of fine sweets may harm a breastfeeding infant. In fact, in many cases, an individual's ignorance of certain matters benefits him. And then in another here... He goes more in-depth into the nature of astrology. Its pursuit has been prohibited based on the following three rationales. One of them is that it is detrimental for most people, for if they were taught that phenomenal events occur as results associated with the movement of the stars, it would occur to them that the stars were the ultimate cause behind the events, and that they were divine entities dictating worldly affairs, because they are sublime heavenly substances. Awe of them would be magnified in the hearts, and a heart would remain torn, turned toward them. They would perceive good and evil as that which is hoped for or dreaded, deriving from them, thus effacing the, member, the remembrance of God from the heart. A weak-minded person has his vision restricted to the intermediary causes of events, whereas the well-versed scholar is fully aware that the sun, moon, and stars all submit to the command of God. The example of the perception of the weak-minded person's conclusion that the light of the sun is due to the sun's rising is similar to the example of the ant, if it were given an intellect and found itself on a sheet of paper looking at the black ink as it traced words. It would believe that words arose from the pen. Its perception does not extend to the awareness of the fingers, then from that to which the hand and then from that out of behind he who sets the hand in motion, then from there to the capable intent of the scribe, and from him to the creator of the hand, the ability to write, and the intention. The perception of the majority of people is limited to the immediate causes of events. They are disconnected from perception of the one who causes all causes. This is one rationale behind the prohibition of pursuing the field of astrology. The second is that judgments derived from astrology are pure conjecture. Nothing is apprehended in specific cases, neither with certainty nor probability. Judgments based on it are judgments based on ignorance. Therefore, condemnation of astrology is because it is considered ignorance, not knowledge. According to what is said, astronomy was a miracle accorded to the prophet Idris by God, when knowledge faded away and disappeared. Those events accord with, and this only rarely, the accurate prediction of the astrologer are nothing but happenstance. For he may come to be apprised of certain secondary causes for which the final result is only realized through multiple conditions, the realities, or hakaik, uh, of which a human being has no means of understanding. If it should come to pass that God decrees the remaining causes, the accuracy will result, and should he not decree the causes, then he, the astrologer, will be inaccurate. 
This case resembles the conjecture of a person that it will rain today whenever he sees clouds gathering and descending from the mountains, and in his mind he supposes it to be the case. However, the day may become hot and sunny and the clouds may dissipate, or it may occur otherwise, for clouds alone are not sufficient to bring rain, and the remaining causes are not to be comprehended. Likewise, there is conjecture of the mariner, reliant on his experience of the winds, that his ship will be out of harm's way on its voyage. Those winds, however, have subtle causes that he does not grasp. So at times his prediction is accurate and at times inaccurate. It is for this rationale that one who is strong in his faith and conviction forbids the practice of astrology. The third rationale behind forbidding astrology is that there is no benefit in it. The least that can be said of its traits is that it is immersing oneself in superfluous matters that do not concern one and it is a waste of one's life, which is the most precious possession a human being has without accruing benefit, which is the epitome of loss. The Messenger of God وسلم, passed by a man around whom people had gathered, and he asked, What is this? To which they responded, Knowledgeable man. He asked, Of what? They said, Of poetry and the family lines of the Arabs. To which he وسلم, responded, Knowledge that does not benefit, and ignorance that does no harm. The Messenger of God وسلم, also said, Knowledge is constituted in a precise verse, an established sunnah, or a just obligatory act. I feel like there's a lot there. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I mean, we, we can maybe start with the last section there. I, you know, the reason this is important is because you don't want to waste your life doing astrology, right? Especially if you don't know it and you think that, you know, what you're doing is um, on a different plane. You know, uh, Imam Ghazali seems to point to uh, observables. Um, the use of, of you know certainty and probability rather than um, you know mere mere conjecture. How how would we go about um, distinguishing these things, right? You know, I, I guess he he offers these uh, criteria, right? That we have observables and that you know we're dealing. I mean, I, I suppose there, there's uh, some question about what he means by by probability here as well, because you know I don't think it was all, all that well developed at that time. Maybe in in linguistics more than anywhere else. Um, but, yeah, we might need to have recourse to the Arabic to really get into that. I think. Yeah. So so we'll maybe just just bracket that. Um, but you know, in, in any case, we we don't want to waste our time with this stuff. And I mean, you you can clearly see the the sort of uh, ashari uh, impulse here to um, compress all causal explanations into the first cause and the effect. Right. In other words, any causal explanation that doesn't ultimately point you back to God, the first cause. You know capital N nature if you really must um, you know is is uh, of this kind of astrological class right like it's just a waste of time it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing yeah it was interesting that he does not directly refute the existence of like creational causation or something though like he goes into the fact that and this is something Ibn Taymiyyah is going to bring up later. Um, you know, it's not that there is no observation and then, like, the formulation of some kind of prediction or whatever. It's simply that of what's available to you is too little. But he could have just as easily said, like, 
none of that matters. Everything you see is constantly arising and falling in and out of existence every moment. Um, thus, you know, the only causation is directly linked to God's, you know, like constant bringing us back into existence after letting us fall away, which would be like the sort of, I think, basic Ashery idea. But it's interesting that he kind of maintains this sort of like modified Aristotelian account, which I think, I mean, we'll be able to talk about it a lot more over the course of this, but I, I know, did notice that he didn't really like cast that aside. Yeah. Yeah. It was strikingly similar to Shin Kuo in some ways <laughs> as well. Like that, I think that really got me thinking like, oh. Uh, did they all know something despite <laughs> being separated by hundreds of years and miles I, I you know i kind of wonder if it's it's just like after a while you've had enough contact with causal explanation users to know that most of them don't know what's going on right that most people who are offering like local causal models for um uh, you know the prediction and control of some phenomenon don't know what's going on right so like for the most part like this is this is going to be a waste of time and like you know in these kind of limited uh, exceptions um, you know like uh, medicine or whatever where you have a, a an observable and you're you know able to um, observe in, in kind of human comprehensible uh, terms the, enough of the totality to actually be able to move beyond these kinds of like uh, silly conjectures, right? Like a, a a model with with too few variables to represent the system at all, right? Because you just you don't have enough. You're just observing the the clouds coming up, uh, down off the mountain, right? You don't have any. Um, you're not adding any information about like wind speed. You're not adding any information about humidity or whatever it is. Yeah, it's a consistent theme with Ghazali, I think, and maybe these others as well, of kind of maintaining an intellectual humility. One of the things that he brings up, it might be in the incoherence, I'm not sure, but I do remember him talking about how people, like let's say you're really great at like Ptolemaic astronomy, that often leads people to then think that they are really, like, just experts at other things that they have not delved that deeply into because of their accomplishments in one branch and yeah. that there's kind of a like um like a religious psychological critique going on which is always like very pretty important to i think a lot of his work which is that you can't really talk about this without talking about self-deception mm. and the ways in which you know, we make ourselves feel as though we may, like, we have this great understanding of things, and I think this is kind of especially at the heart of astrology is, like, you've spent all this time studying, you know, like, the, um, the, like, mathematical model tables for, like, the astronomical movements of things and are trying to, like, make predictions. You've probably, like Gozali is saying, like, sunk a lot of your life into this, and I think with that it has to come, like, a certain level of like you just have to believe at that point that it means something that it's real and that whatever maybe like your predictions are wrong but that's not proof of the fact that this is random and yeah maybe a better sense of this word but maybe like you just have to do better next time or like you you weren't working with the best data set but you'll get a better you know there's a certain kind of like 
inability to see when something is false, I guess. But yeah. um, we can move on to so Ibn Taymiyyah had a few fatwas about astrology and other things that were translated uh, by Yahya Micho, who I believe is has been and still is at Hartford uh, mm. Seminary. He translated, I think, two of the fatwas like in total in an article, which was really nice to be able to go through and read. And I've called a few things out of them. They won't all directly relate, but that's the nature of marginalia. Um, so we'll just hop into the middle of one here. Uh, this, so we're talking about um, like what is an eclipse? Eclipses come up all the time, and the discussions around astrology and like kind of the meaning of astral phenomena. And the eclipse is one that has freaked people out, and you would get a lot of astrological type activities surrounding the attempt to explain them, uh, as well as predict them. And Ibn Taymiyyah writes, The fact that the Prophet informs us that God frightens his servants by such a phenomenon, an eclipse, clearly establishes that it may be a cause of some torment that he sends down onto us, similarly to strong storm winds. And that only happens because God made it a cause of what he sends down to the earth. Whoever means by saying that the stars have an influence, that which is known by the senses and by these other affairs, this is true. God has, however, commanded the various acts of worship that repel from us whatever evil is sent by this, uh, by which he's referring to the instruction that we receive from the prophet to pray the eclipse player, give alms and free slaves, maybe some other things do whenever an eclipse happens as a way of protecting yourself from the evil which, which comes with it. Concerning the causes of good and evil, this is the tradition to follow. In the case of the apparent causes of the good, the servant accomplishes some of the righteous actions because of which God brings about the good, and in the case of evil, some of the acts of worship because of which God repels from him the evil. As for what is hidden of the causes, the servant is not commanded to take upon himself to know that. That was interesting. Yeah. In that, like, the eclipse being a cause of evil is kind of, like, affirmed as a real possibility that you shouldn't discount. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah, I mean, the eclipse prayer has, has some function, right? So yeah, and I mean, it's interesting because now we're getting into, like, I mean, I would say, and I think that probably this is kind of what the, where the, where the literature is at today, like, Ibn Taymiyyah is definitely, like, a rationalist in some sense, mm -hmm. whereas he's usually portrayed, I think, by people who don't have much familiarity with him, honestly, as, as like, a, a literalist, like, a textual literalist, where it's, like, the only things that I can affirm are just what's literally in the Hadith or the Quran, um, but I, you're reading through this, this is one of the first places where I saw that he was actually like a far more dynamic and like interesting thinker in that way. Um, there's a lot of things that are kind of surprising about what he says. And so when he says, whoever means by saying that the stars have an influence, that which is known by the senses and by these other affairs, this is true. It's kind of like an empiricism. I would say, which 
there was that whale halak translation of his book against the logicians mm. which i think is supposedly like a text which I, i've read some of it but it's I haven't read all of it, so I don't really comment on it, but it's supposed to set up like this idea that Ibn Taymiyyah was kind of a nominalist and that he rejected the idea of like essence, logical essence, because it had, I think most, a lot of people were, were um, making metaphysical claims about essences that he found to be particularly dangerous and an error, but he was still engaging, I think, with the philosophical tradition in a way where like, it's just an obvious use of reason. It's not anti-philosophical or anything like that. And I think that we've, uh, like the Western reception of a lot of this stuff, like it's the standard account of like Ghazali destroyed philosophy. Yeah. And it never recovered. Um, sad or whatever. And like the idea that you can say, oh, these people are theologians and these people are philosophers. like. I, there's a case to be made for that distinction I think like in terms of, of like endogenously or whatever like there is the word philosopher you know and the mutakalimun um, uh, you know like in Arabic used at that time to distinguish different pursuits but I think if you're talking about a like modern western pursuit of philosophy and the fact that, like, we don't really have any problem talking about Thomas Aquinas as a philosopher, I think really kind of, for me, makes a lot of that questionable. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's no question that a big chunk of that narrative is because both uh, Ghazali and um, Taimiya stake out at least rhetorically like anti-greek positions right <laughs> and so right we were, you know it's basically just like okay well if you're if you're against the greeks you're anti-rationalist like you're you're not engaging in in proper philosophy at this point um you know that that kind of prejudice is there um but you know maybe it's worth worth mentioning some things um about the the context here because but you know why why are they even talking about astrology was because it was completely pervasive in their societies, right? So they're they're very um, concerned about the impact that um, this kind of thinking has on, you know, not just like the affairs of like common ignorant people, the awam, whatever. They they're concerned about like you know, uh, astrologers going to the sultan with some you know dire prediction and just very bad things happening as a result of the state taking these kinds of things on board um you know it's a it's high stakes so there's very good reason for them to to be addressing this um and it's not it, it is definitely not anti-rationalist you know and if, if anything uh, i think taimiya is upset with the extent to which the ashari kind of I don't know if it's right to call it a consensus, but like th this sort of elite uh, Ashari opinion can't really address local causes. Like you can't you in in the in the Ashari school basically, you know, to offer a, a causal explanation for some phenomenon is to miss the the semiotic content of the phenomenon. In other words, the the fire um, does not burn. You know, paper because of some property of the fire, it burns it because God decrees it is so, and He's doing that in order to direct your inner state, your your inner sight, 
to uh, his majesty or to make you grateful for warmth and for light and for the ability to cook food and you know these kinds of things so you're just like when you're engaging in in causal explanations you're basically kind of like missing the point and for it like for uh, Imam Taymiyyah that's clearly you know just an empty empty kind of construct like you can't do anything with that you're never going to you know um, uh, convince the people who are using you know let's say defective local causal explanations from astrology that they ought to just kind of like throw up their hands and say you know well it's all from God's will and like we're fine right like they're still going to be reasoning causally so you know you ha you have to engage at that level and determine like what is actually a, a, a better way of thinking about this yeah it is it's one of the big questions is like what form of causal reasoning is like basically the province of charlatans and what is the like really eminently useful and pragmatic thing that we're already have been doing since before we had invented these terms for it right and like extensions of that which are of some benefit and like necessary and i it's, it's sort of what we're, I think, getting into. Um, since you brought it up, I'll, I'll read ahead a bit. We haven't gotten to Ibn al-Khaim yet, but in the one of the articles um, about some of his thinking on this subject, the, the author gives a, a good kind of like context for these times. Um, so, born in uh, Mamluk, Damascus, in 1292, Ibn al-Qayyim spoke for the literate Arabic reading Sunni Ummah at a time when Islamdom was emerging from or undergoing a series of threatening blows. The Crusades, the Mongol destruction of Baghdad, and the Abbasid Caliphate, Mamluk political turmoil that was concomitant with the continuing loss of international transport trade to the Venetians, inflationary periods during which Syrians and Egyptians were reported to have eaten dogs and donkeys in the streets, periodic visitations of the Black Plague when people dropped like flies, and a terrifying earthquake that so shook Mount Mukhatham in Cairo that the people in distant Damascus thought that the Yamal Kiyama Judgment Day had come. To this could be added the continuing loss of Islamic lands to the Spanish conquistadors, an unmitigated catastrophe for Ibn Khaldun, writing less than a generation after Ibn al-Qaim. These disasters formed a large part of the psychological background to the perceived general malaise besetting Islam in the 14th century. As in later Hellenistic times, and perhaps our own, people facing political and economic decline, social insecurity, and a threatening host of impending disasters found refuge in the occult. Ulama, with Ibn al-Qaim taking a leading position, saw the occultic sciences as so many pantheists eating away at Islam's spiritual innards, where God's undivided omnipotence was parceled out to stars and birds, and elemental nature was charged with a transmutational potency that appeared to be self-sustained. Far from being a radical Hanbali fundamentalist, Ibn al-Qaim was a jurist and theologian who possessed a competent knowledge of science and philosophy, in addition to an inclination towards mysticism. And through his career as a defender of Sunni purity against an inner threat of intellectual perversion parallels that of Al Khazali's. That was I was it was actually a pretty good little summary. Really, I never in my mind had just all of those events together quite in that way, but it's it's fairly stark, I think. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, me either. Um, you know, and you know, it, it is nice to get a, another perspective besides you know Imam Taymiyyah, father of terrorism, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. if we actually have a look at the the historical um, context, it, it's a lot more clear why he was writing so stridently, right? I mean, he's he's not. Uh, He's not doing this because he doesn't like, you know, um, housewives getting their their horoscopes told, right? Like there are real problems with his his society, and lots of that has to do with the way that events are being interpreted and the way that people, um, you know, uh, muffle things causally, you know, in their in their minds. Right, and I. I think that, I mean, as one reads these things, it, it becomes clear, like, the reality of things versus the uh, the portrayal of, of the reality by certain, I guess, primary Western scholars with an interest in making tendentious claims. Um, yeah. So we can go back here and keep going through Ibn Taymiyyah and kind of see where we're at. So he goes on to say that in the Sahih, um, it is established about the prophet, God bless him and grant him peace, that it was said to him, There are among us people who frequent the diviners, and he says, They are nothing. And they say, O oh, messenger of God, they sometimes tell us something and it comes true. The messenger of God, God bless him and grant him peace, then said, This utterance of the truth, it is the genie who hears it and he who puts it in the ear of his friend. Um, that's some marginalia. That's pretty fun, though. And I mean... We could say like, oh, I mean, I doubt if you're listening to this, you would say this, but <laughs> someone might say like, you know, these are sort of quaint superstitious things to believe or whatever. But I think the truth of it is that like we've been saying, there obviously is an unseen realm. No one denies that. Like we established like pretty early on, like contemporary physicists don't deny that. They just they um, have their own subset of things that are unseen and I would imagine they could say it's part of our kind of like to quote Dagoth or our grand and intoxicating innocence <laughs> that we have kind of imagined that that's not true you know what I like when we're talking about like the fact that jinn are like putting truth mixed with lies into the ears of the astrologers who then give it to the people like even if you were someone who was kind of a skeptic I feel like you could get to a point where you would be forced to admit that that's not necessarily a bad description of the observable phenomena coming out of those activities socially. Yeah. Um, Look at Twitter. There's there's clearly Jin active on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's you, you know I I think it's helpful like if if I was talking to myself you know as a sort of callow young atheist. Um, probably what I would say is you have to understand these things as uh, nominating categories of causes um, and the the specific content of it is less important than uh, that the nomination of like let's say jinn or angels or whatever as metaphysical existence um, denotes an, an agent right something that participates in in uh, the ag agency of God basically in some way whether that's you know, we could say deterministically with the, the angels who are rigidly carrying out the will of God as this kind of intermediary um, uh, substance, if you want, between the kind of unchanging essence of God and the changing 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to commit to essence here, <laughs> but you know what I mean, like the yeah. unchanging uh, uh, dot, I suppose we say in Arabic, um, of, of God and the changing, you know, substance of, of the world. Yeah, so, and, and in the case of jinn, you're denoting an agent that's much like us, but is, is in the, the unseen, right? So in the, in the Ashari kind of perspective on free will, which I, I think Ibn Taymiyyah wouldn't take too much issue with, you know, we petition God for acts, right? So our, our volitional acts are nonetheless, in some sense, carried out by angels, but they have been petitioned for by our, our souls participating in uh, the agency which underlies everything. Yeah. No, I think that that's a pretty important point to make um, because, well, we'll just say that, like, Thinking in that way, it's obviously not dissimilar to what we are already all doing all the time as moderns or whatever, like the ways in which we think and do assign like these, you know, or like the way I should say the way in which we think in terms of agency all the time and like biology, I think you would agree is like a huge example of this, but then like outright deny any actual like existing agency. But we're then really at all to explain all of the language we just used to describe something because it all is pretty heavily like agency. Yeah, right. And I, I mean, so someone who's listening to this who has some some biological background might think, well, y- yes, of course, you know, um, we use uh, agential or functional language um, as a as a shorthand for something which is always reducible to you know dumb material causes right like just deterministic mechanical um, kind of unfolding of uh, this um, you know complex system I, I think really that's that's not tenable anymore you know so Minot uh, Jacques Minot, the the great French uh, molecular biologist um, and microbiologist, was famously, you know, just horrified by um, the the presence of teleological language in biology. You know, like to say that a, a heart has a purpose, right? Like the purpose of the heart is is to pump blood, um, is like totally unacceptable as an explanation. Uh, either for you know what the the heart is doing, um, or for the appearance of the heart in the first place, right? Like the, those, he's he wants to like totally reject uh, final causality, and we've we've kind of inherited Minode's like great horror. I mean, it was it was shared um, certainly by you know many people of his his generation. Um, but I think by this point, it's very clear that like if you don't have some kind of idea of like what a function is, uh, you're kind of dead in the water as far as like a biological explanation goes. Like you're you're not only are you not going to be able to communicate with anyone, you know, even if you believe it's like kind of a shorthand for something that could be reduced to um, uh, like a mechanistic uh, physical explanation or physical chemical explanation or whatever. You know, you're you're actually cutting yourself off from huge chunks of uh, the empirical literature, which are not posed in terms that you can reduce to sort of Minode's idea of the cell as a as a cybernetic factory, right? And so, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll probably get back to cybernetics later, but the the point is is that 
you know, this this kind of idea is now increasingly being abandoned, I would say. Uh, the growth of the biosemiotic literature is is proof of that. And you know, you you really need. I mean, if if you even if you are a completely secular person, if you have no explanation for agency, for the emergence of complex uh, structures, or for function, uh, nothing that incorporates or e explains in what sense organisms have a final cause that they uh, develop towards uh, a talus that they develop towards, because development fundamentally is about convergent complexity, right? Like the development of individuals of a species is not divergent in the way that evolutionary theory produces with multiple species, right? Like within a species, we have convergent development on a single endpoint. So this calls for a teleological explanation. If you don't have one, you're, you're simply leaving out most of the interesting stuff in biology, frankly. So Yeah, it's almost, I would rather be blind. <laughs> To yeah. see that. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no, for sure. And and I mean, I think you, you definitely, you definitely see that all over the literature. It's like an intense squeamishness about this, um, you know, and, and people, I think they want to naturalize this as, uh, as another physical law in many cases, right? So you have some kind of like, like neg entropy principle out of like Schrodinger or I think uh, Richard Swenson, wants to have like a fourth law of thermodynamics that does something very similar that like, you know, forces you towards uh, increases in complexity over time, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and so that's that's one way to think about that if you're like truly squeamish about the idea of agency or something like that. But I mean, it, you know, the, the critiques that have been made by now against this the standard kind of neo-darwinian synthetic account of evolutionary theory are just devastating right like if it, fundamentally um you know evolutionary theory relies upon agents like the the striving agent is presupposed by the theory it's not explained by the theory if you don't have uh motile um, agents then you simply don't have um, the the uh, Malthusian growth curves that are um, taken for granted as producing the selective pressure um, for you know many of the most basic kinds of uh, evolutionary scenarios that we we would model right so I mean it, there are all kinds of problems with this like you, you you simply need to have some account of this Wh whether or not it's you know theistic doesn't really matter and if it is theistic then like you know you shouldn't get complacent about it either right like i i do think um uh, ibn Taymiyyah's account uh of or a criticism of the ashari school is correct right like this is this is not cognitively active for anyone who has to trade in causal explanations right they'll say oh yeah, yeah god's doing everything and then they'll go back to astrology because they still need to make predictions they still need to make decisions yeah, and I would say that it really does seem like the point of formulating these ideas um, in the Ashery or other schools was primarily polemic, and the need was felt mainly to debate, I guess, initially probably Christians and maybe Jews or other people who, who wanted to make counterclaims to like Islamic understandings of things or just for the fact that like a Muslim 
would have to eventually encounter people dealing with the world like on a um, like a peripatetic philosophical basis or something like that and they would need to be able to like think in those terms and respond to those things and there is philosophical activity as we know going on um, in the Islamic world where you had people trying to do interesting like syncretistic type things and it all felt like it needed to be addressed with some sort of firm statement of like as close as language can get to the truth which I think you know it's pretty widely agreed that like Ashery theology is not a description of reality but it's just as close as you can get to one aspect of it to prevent people from moving beyond the bounds of what is acceptable which I think is probably like you know that's a really specific function for a body of thought to have and I think maybe it's good to understand it in those terms too absolutely yeah absolutely and I, I think that's been pointed out by uh, I okay I'm, I, I'm gonna mess this I, it might have been uh, George MacDesey, I'm not sure, um, but um, you know, one of the greats has has pointed out that uh, you know quite some time ago that um, uh, the Ashari kind of school was only really one level of discourse that um, uh, Imam Ashari actually offered. So, it, it, and I, I think it was you know dubbed the the two two ways of of Al Ashari or something like that. And the idea is basically that, you know, this was uh, uh, quite a, a rarefied type of discourse um, that was specifically really intended as a almost a psychological balm or treatment for like people who had OD'd on causality. You know, <laughs> like it's not a scientific uh, function that this is that this is serving, right? Like this has a specific intellectual function. Um, and it's not being offered to everyone. Like if you if you went to learn like the basics of theology uh, at a uh, madrasa that was you know attended um, by Ashari scholars, they probably wouldn't mention any of this to you unless they thought it was something that like you would benefit from spiritually, right? Like you you have real problems like with the idea of efficient causality. And like, you know, if you accept efficient causality, which is to say that, you know, like perhaps things are uh, effective in and of themselves, their causes in and of themselves, um, you know, or you're treating them that way in your explanations, um, you know, if you're really disturbed by that, in other words, like idolatry seems like true and real to you and you feel like you know you should be like giving thanks to the fire for cooking your food then like here's here's kind of a, a balm for your heart right like god's doing everything you know and it's it's from his his power that this happens and i i mean i i think also there's a huge like moral philosophical component that we're just kind of alighting here for the purpose of discussing the causal causal relation uh kind of aspect of it but you know, uh, like it's it's worth mentioning that you know a big kind of part of this is theodicy, right? And so the Asharis are concerned to deal with uh, you know many of the the problems that had uh, arisen from um, other kinds of schools of philosophy um, in uh, uh, the Islamic world that um, 
would constrain God basically to do only what is is right or just or good or balanced or fair by some kind of human metric. And so the Eshari school is very much about uh, citing the justification for what God does within his power and his absolute lack of need or you know objective with respect to the world. Um, but that's that's kind of separate from from what we might describe as, uh, this kind of like empty box for subsuming causal explanations. Yeah, I mean, it, and when, in the Ghazali that we read today too, he, when he mentions like we know that not all knowledge benefits, or it doesn't always benefit everyone all the time. Like you have to really understand specific situations and people, and what they can and should deal with, and what they shouldn't deal with. Like what will hurt them. Um, and I think that is really, at least of this kind of tradition of like Sunni scholarship, we could say around these issues, you really can't like that's never separable in terms of it's like it's the paramount concern of, of this kind of literature is this like, you know, it's about people um, really fundamentally in a way that always struck me as like similar I guess you could say to Confucianism pretty much of any stripe or or period like there is a similar emphasis on the fact that in concern here is like people's ethical education behavior and realization and well depending on like where you sit on that you might believe that the ethical perfection of the human being carries with it a lot of like unseen hidden and like metaphysical aspects uh, levels of knowledge that are experiential and that are only vaguely describable which you kind of see in a book like um the doctrine of the mean like one of the four one of the four confucian classics uh definitely the one that has you know anything approaching like metaphysics in it in a direct way but they posit kind of that like the sage has reached a level of attainment where he is so actualized that given at least an implicit kind of like microcosm macrocosm understanding of man and the 10,000 things um, all of thing, everything else that he then like in some ways like having perfected himself thus is now leading to the perfection of things around him and like things are just naturally better in his presence because of his like um his attainment you could say and i i don't really have a lot to say about that with certainty but like you know reminds me a lot of the idea of like insan al-kamil or like you know the real human being and and certain uh, bodies of islamic thinking like the person who is fully attaining the like possibilities inherent human condition that very few people ever really come to um and i mean it's obviously very similar to descriptions of you know the saints and their activity and and the like the moral change that happens to people around them and things like that so it's an interesting point of convergence, I think, between these two traditions that are otherwise pretty geographically distant, but it also speaks to the fact that I think we're going to come back to time and again, which is that 
their concerns are you could in some way say are largely pragmatic even though they're not they're not pragmatist um, right but they are like the most important thing is like taking human beings and like making them better and there's an obvious telos to that implied and each you know everyone kind of has some idea of what that is but it's really the point of all of this is that rather than completely like disinterested speculative metaphysics being like a good in and of itself which i don't think many people in either tradition would necessarily agree to that statement yeah i and and this goes back to you know are we wasting our time with causal explanations right like what what are these for and um, you know how would we how would we assess that? And I I think it it should be clear to everyone now that like you know being a, a causal explanation user in in modernity does not really imply any type of ethical orientation at all. Um, and you know if you're just kind of being swept up in institutional currents, like you're probably going to end up doing weird stuff. Like I you know just to touch on a on a contemporary example i mean the i i genuinely believe that most of the the scientists who were doing you know like gain of function research or whatever on coronavirus um did not intend to cause a global pandemic and kill you know uh, millions of people or whatever it is but at the same time there was nothing telling them you know this is gonna have bad outcomes right like even even if this is uh even if you're you're working with good explanations that allow you to predict and control outcomes like these are these are things that you're doing because you're just like totally unmoored at this point like your knowledge if it if it ever did operate on you as an ethical being it's not doing that right now right right and i think it's probably for anyone who is, you know, just from my own experience, like having grown up in this society, being steeped in the way that we think about things as like, you know, the hegemonic modes of thinking, forms of understanding, it's very difficult to understand a like integrated, somewhat like form of, of, of thinking about all these different things. Like whether or not there's a kind of like monism of knowledge or not, um, there is a like integration of concerns with every branch of things. It's something that is often called in in Islam uh, like rooting knowledge. Like knowledge is rooted. Like you can take knowledge that Muslims didn't produce, but you root it, which I think primarily is like rooting it first in uh, like an Islamic uh, understanding of belief you know like the fundamental and primary science and it, making sure that it's not like contradicting what you basically like know axiomatically to be true based on reason and revelation or whatever but then like the greater project maybe of integrating it into like a social spiritual product of like realizing um whatever set of like moral ethical things you you know like you have this sort of commitment to realize in this world and like does it serve those ends not you know like do you need it or is it worthless because why else would you have knowledge you know 
And you might say, like, well, what about things that just make our lives easier? And I think that that understanding, like, fully encompasses something like that. There's not really, like, you could say that, like, scientific achievements to, like, make food easier to grow or something. Like, those are necessarily bound up in that project of, of ethics. And I, you know, like, well, when, for instance, when you read um, Mungsa, Mencius, he is talking pretty often about farming um a lot of uh, it spends a good amount of time on things like not over uh foresting or overfishing and kind of getting into ideas of like having a sustainable supply of resources sort of like in perpetuity as much as one could attempt to make that possible and a societal organization which enables people to like all have enough that they're not worried for their subsistence because he would posit that only under those conditions is like ethical behavior and instruction possible for like the general mass of people and that while uh like specifically you know like a ethical elite or like the gentleman or the junsa ever is capable of maintaining his ethical posture even in extremely dire circumstances it's not something you could really expect from the whole of the people and history completely bears out the fact that when under strain and like existential threat people will often do whatever they have to and that's not always like good or conducive to civilization and like peace and trying to produce these things that are you know like things that at least if you are a muslim or a confucian or whatever you would say are like the good or something to be attained in this world socially and if you like if you're a muslim then the good of the next world which you you hope and strive for in this world by by doing like good acts yeah and, and indeed uh we can say perhaps in the in the confucian tradition as well i mean if kongza himself was was a monotheist as i think perhaps we're going to stake out uh that as a as a uh, contention on this on this podcast this is a confucian monotheism podcast <laughs> um yeah the next the good of the next world as well yeah and uh, yeah so i i guess that's that's probably enough about that right like we um where are we here we're we're still with ibn Taymiyyah, right so yeah i think we can like finish out the material i have of his and we can yeah. even we can quickly like go through a little bit of ibn al-qaim and then i think we'll be in a good place to talk about it and um if we want to we can even visit like the implications of this for the social realm a little bit yeah with some alistair mcintyre and uh stuff i pulled from the feet of brother Kantbot. okay right on <laughs>
so back to Ibn Taymiyyah here on astrology. Uh, the edifice of their science is based on the premise that the superior movements are the cause of events in this world and that knowing the cause necessarily yields not what is caused. Uh, and what is caused, if you are interested, the Arabic is musabbab. But this only happens when one knows the complete cause, whose rule does not fail to be implemented. The most of those know, however, is that they know only a tiny part of the sum of the many causes and do not know the rest of the causes, nor their conditions, nor the things hindering them. There is a marginal note in that piece there where we are given a bit from Ibn Sina, who wrote in one of his works uh, where he uh, engages in a refutation of astrology. Yet, to wonder if man does or does not perceive that is which is hidden, al-ghayb, belongs to the principles. And the prophet, God bless him and grant him peace, denied such a perception. We have a pretty fundamental agreement with Ghazali, I think, on the fact that causes, insofar as they exist, can be, like, it seems that they're not denying that they have some kind of reality, but the contention, specifically with astrology and other forms of divination, is that these things do not apprehend causality in terms of its existence in a sufficient way to have any kind of knowledge about what should follow from something else. Um, so really, like, we're, it's an epistemic claim here that's being made against astrology. One interesting thing to note, since we were talking about whether or not Ibn Taymiyyah might be anti-Greek, uh, there's a section of one of his fatwa where he says, The philosophers all agree on the fact that no greater nomos reached the world than the nomos that Muhammad brought. God bless him and grant him peace. Uh, and in relation to the, the fact that the translation used nomos um, rather than like law, for instance, uh, Yahya Mishat says, in this passage, Ibn Taymiyyah clearly uses the Arabic transliteration for the Greek nomos in the sense of sharia. It is of interest to note that such a usage, far from being exclusive to philosophers, the Ikhwan al-Safa, Sena et al., um, is also accepted by a religious scholar like the Sheikh al-Islam. Such an explicit assimilation of the sharia to the Greek law offers a good illustration of the extent of the continuity between the classical Greek and Islamic Weltanschauungs, as analyzed by Leo Strauss. Haha. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just interesting to point out. Like, I, I would imagine that most people probably I have no idea that that something like that was, you know, found casually in some of his writings. And I think the extent to which. Oh, so here's just to take a brief aside. This, after I started reading about like Chinese Islam and other you know other places where Islam took root but had a really different cultural expression, I came to like kind of reassess the way that I understood Islam Islam, which I think we kind of granted a normative status to just like anything that happened in the Mediterranean world. You know, like yeah, that's Islam, and then things further away from that are like blank Islam. However, if you take the kind of view of it where Islam, you know, what is Islam? Well, it's like it's the Tao of Muhammad, or you know what I mean? It's the Sharia. It's this method by which you are walking like a path towards your salvation. So it contains things like revelation, 
rulings based explicitly or derived from revelation about how you should behave and do things in the world, rulings about what beliefs you should hold and why you should hold them, methodologies for walking this path towards, you know, kind of radically transforming yourself as a person and achieving your end. Um, These are all like the air. To some extent, some of them were like developed and explicated in a pretty specific cultural context or series of them. But the, the way that I think traditionally it has been understood is like that what is essential, and we'll just use that word kind of like informally to that, you know, that can go and take root there and it will be instantiated and like have an efflorescence in that new place in a way that's culturally very particular and specific to that place. Now, nothing about that will ever contravene what is certain or absolute, you know, in terms of, like, the rulings of the Sharia or, you know, the, uh, the Akita, the, the beliefs, um, principles of the Dean. But it's still, you know, retaining everything essential may not look all that much like what happened in Syria, for instance, you know, or, or anywhere, um, or Al-Andalus. And so now I started, when I look back, I think, so a lot of what we think of as like, oh, that's just like pure Islam is really like Hellenistic Islam. Like if we want to use terms like Chinese Islam or like, you know, Indian Islam, I think we, we could probably benefit from looking at really a lot of what took place after Islam left Arabia as, as Hellenistic Islam because it was absolutely the flowering of Islam in a very Hellenistic cultural context with a lot of Hellenistic ways of thinking and doing things um, and seeing that somehow like more intrinsically Islamic than, than what happens elsewhere I think is perhaps a mistake but with that marginalia out of the way we'll return <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you're right on, though. Um, one interesting thing, so Al Jazeera's uh, Mifta Dar al Saada. My Arabic pronunciations are probably horrible, so you have to forgive me if you can actually speak Arabic. Um, has been compared often, and I've seen this in more than one place, like in more than one uh, journal article, to Pico uh, de Mirandola's Adversus Astrologium. Uh, so apparently, and it's entirely possible, I would think, that like Pico de Mirandola like, actually read some material from the Islamic world refuting astrology and, or made use of it. Because he, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, studied with a Jewish scholar who certainly had knowledge of Arabic and classical Arabic literature. Uh, one of the many ways in which the Renaissance... Uh, Italian thinkers were, were penetrated by Arabic knowledge um, and it kind of filtered in in different interesting ways. Definitely. So anyways, the, the, the couple articles I had about Al Jazeera, uh, Ibn al-Qayyim al Jazeera, are more of a summary uh, with a few direct quotes than, than an actual translation. So not all of this is, is him speaking himself, but anyways... Um, Al Jazeera particularly uh, thinks that the influences upon human character are found in natural conditions of heat and climate, 
and he has this whole like funny thing about how it's like all great civilizations sprung up along really like a particular band of kind of just between the equator and like the pole just at the right place where you could get china persia um etc like any place of great civilizational achievement ends up along this band and if you go further south or further north you know like for instance further north you get who he numbers is like the franks the turks all these people who are just too white they're too fat they're too sluggish like they're not capable of great thinking <laughs> um it's you know unfortunate for them but they have to be in this benighted state because of their climate and northern barbarians right common and, common <laughs> and he's going to posit that when you want to talk about the effect of astral phenomena upon the world then you really can only do it in this way because to him this is just like pretty self-evidently observable like climate access to water food these kinds of things all interdependent on the sun the sun's energy the way like all this stuff like that's the effect that you can talk about on personality or you can at least reason about um and what all this seems to indicate is that the influences of the type on the types of human character are attributable to the natural conditions prevailing in the seven regions. Sun, wind, earth, the reflection of the rays are all partial causes, to uh, the totality of which is the one cause, following the powerful. From whom comes the orb of the world, which these ignoranuses know not? With the general public, this is we're moving away from Josiah back to the kind of summary. With the general public offering a market of buyers ready to pay for and believe almost anything that was well-dressed in logical structure and scientific jargon and that offered the hope of gain or security in a tumultuous period, the occult prospered during these times. I was appended to like the earlier summary we read of the, of the situation going on in the Islamic world at that time. It sounds familiar. Yeah, it was, it was like strikingly similar uh, to <laughs> something going on today. Yeah. Um, he so Josiah kind of paused that like astronomy was a real science, a great science, and it had many great expositors. However, he he thinks in his time it's like it's not only fallen but like lost. That there there's no one is left who does real astronomy. Like everyone is engaged in some kind of trickery for money or like you know survival or whatever and and it's kind of like uh betrayed the like real roots of it as a, a meaningful science um and here we have it even a superior and astronomer and scientist as abu rehan al-biruni whose failing weakness was to write a book on the art tafhim al-nujum could be seduced though he had the good sense to criticize other astrologers Al-Biruni's case highlights the dangers of astrology, for even great minds could be ensnared, and for Ibn al-Qaim, Al-Biruni was one of the best. He praises him as a great scientist who produced innumerable valuable works in astronomy and mathematics, including Zij, the Qanun al-Mas'ud, named after the Glasnavid ruler. It should be noted here that even brilliant scientists subscribe to some belief in astrology. It seems reasonable to believe that just as the cyclic patterns of the luminaries determined the years and seasons and shaped the character of nature, so too was human character to some degree abstractly influenced by those patterns. For all his reservations concerning a great scientist who could write a text on astrology, 
Ibn al-Qaim laments the passing of the days when men like al-Biruni were holding the line between true science and false. Sometime during the three centuries between al-Biruni's death and his own time, as the Hanbali theologians saw it, science had given way to false. Astronomy in our days dead, he complained, quite as ironically as al-Biruni did in his, <laughs> when Islamic science was owing in great part to his own prodigious output at its apogee. Um, he had claimed that no real science was being done anymore. The Greeks had done it all. What came after was inconsequential and continued to be so. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Which the author uh, doesn't agree with. I think he, he says that there was quite a lot of, of interesting things going on in the Islamic world scientifically then and after. But, um, you know, I think a lot of these people have a at least extremely relatable tendency towards pessimism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you kind of expect to see broad broad dismissals in these. And again, like, they are polemic works, primarily. So. Yeah, I mean, this is, like, probably a random Joe asking, is astrology fine? And so you have to kind of deliver the message that's appropriate to the, the audience or whatever. Yeah. Um, and... He, we'll go on and move uh, to kind of, I think, uh, a nice encapsulating statement of sort of... Because Al-Jazia, one of the things that he does is he kind of just cycles through methods of refuting um, without a really like much of a concern as to like what the underlying framework for that is. So for a while he'll speak kind of in the mode as if he is like an adherent of some kind of Aristotelian physics and be like even in this framework it makes no sense Aristotle himself you know contravenes what the astrologers say on many points and then he'll move on and then like throw that into the garbage and then like talk about it in these other ways and he kind of is like op is you know moving from like position to position opening fire and then moving to like a more advantageous position opening fire and like as he you know attempts to like mount this assault so he's not really when reading him i think i learned to be a bit careful of the, like because what we were saying with Ghazali or like Bentamiya, like it doesn't seem like they refute some reality of like the apprehension of causes and reasoning about them um but it, it seems like with ibn al-qaim one would not want to take the fact that he's using a framework or his polemic as some kind of implicit um, justification. Or like, you wouldn't want to take it as if he believed in that per se, merely that he wanted to demonstrate that under a few different lenses, it doesn't hold up. I think you might say under no lens does it really hold up. And he says, one cannot proceed logically or... Uh, from the mathematical and rational to the divine sciences. The first concerns secondary intelligible objects, knowledge of which derives from thought and experience, and the second is learned directly from God's angels. So we, we might gloss that perhaps in a, in a secular framework as um, the difference between reason and intuition. Right, right. One, one you have like experience and like rationality and then the other you have some kind of direct knowing which is different and 
much discussed, I think, in the early modern period in various ways. So he kind of wants to set up that, like, the rational, say, like, the, the physical sciences or whatever, um, that ma- the mathematical and rational sciences, you can, you, you'll learn things like medicine or astronomy or whatever, you'll build, like, models, you'll try to do intervention, like, whatever you're going to be doing with them, and that can help you attain those ends, but that only with the divine sciences can you attain to knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong, the path to which you should walk, and like what we were saying earlier, like the ends of all human life as understood in the Islamic tradition, it's really only possible for you to get that information in a really reliable way that you can act upon by having access to revelation essentially, where it was revealed to people by God's angels. And that that is not knowledge that one can attain to. Like he pretty directly, I think, says that there's no rational morality. Um, What he will admit, and it's kind of an interesting point of maybe uh, tension, is that, you know, he he obviously is not going to deny the concept of the fitra or like the... um, and the Islamic tradition, which is like this understanding of a primordial human disposition, if you will, which on some level does uh, attain to access to knowledge of what is right and wrong, um, but which, and I think, well, we could just stop here and say this is really incredibly similar to one of the central focal points of Monks's understanding of the, the, the Confucian school, which is uh, the Man is essentially born with the sprouts of virtue, he calls them. You've got all of these capacities towards really the primary Confucian virtues of like wisdom, righteousness, and and compassion, um, empathy with other people. And he, one of like the most famous sort of argument he gives as proof of this is that, you know, you can imagine anyone, if they saw a child falling into a well they would have a split second urge to save the child and the difference between people then would not be in their initial capacities or their initial disposition but the lives that they had led or their physical circumstances after and beyond that um, which are perfectly capable of clouding and destroying man's original ethical nature Thus, the man won't always save the child. He may begin calculating immediately what sort of worldly gain might come from saving that child. <laughs> but it would all, Mungsa would say, come after the initial brief spark that says, like, I have to save that person from dying. And it's natural, it's reflexive, it's like probably pre-rational in some, in- like some way, at least in his understanding. And he likens... So he likens this kind of capacity to like people say, because he was arguing against people who would say like human nature is neutral or human nature maybe even is evil. Um, And he would say, they would be like, well, look, there's obviously people who have no trace of goodness. So what do you say about them? And he would say, you know, there are mountains that used to have forests on them, but after all the trees were cut down, there was no sign of the forest. But could you say that there was never a forest there? And it, there's a lot of other metaphors that he goes on to deploy, which are all basically the same, like the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. <laughs> um, 
Right. I think that is a that's a very interesting parallel with the concept of fitra as well. Like it seems to map very closely. Yeah, it's because it's not necessarily that like all human beings have rational access to morality, because you have a lot of intervening circumstances which are going to dampen that to some extent or another. And I think it at least is like kind of an explanatory framework for understanding like human difference in this area It is at least internally pretty consistent because you do have people who, you know, maybe they're not extremely religious, but seemingly they would gain the acclaim of like anyone that they met, you know, that they were like a good person and some understanding of that, which in our times it would be difficult to give a like direct explanation of what is being good even mean yeah, we would all have a kind of feeling about them of like, I trust them, they're helpful, you know, they seem to care about people, they have opportunities to seek their own gain at others' expense and they never take them, you know. Maybe this person's not religious in any way, but they still embody things. And there is this kind of explanation within both, like each of these frameworks to kind of say like, ethical education is one way and it's the way most people have to follow in order to achieve something like that, but it's not necessarily the only way. And some people are born, um, Jushi, the later formula of what would be called the school of the way, which we refer to with the exonym uh, Neo-Confucianism. Um, he would say that like people are endowed with different form, like mixtures of chi or something to that extent. So your psychophysical makeup could really differ person to person in a lot of ways. And some people might be born with a chi such that it's just very easy for them to enact virtue. And you might even say that someone like, you know, the initial sage kings of China would might fall under that where for it's really no effort, they're just doing it. It's almost like they're being kind of divinely helped, you could say. And I mean, that's certainly like we have the, we, we talk about the prophet, the holy prophet in the sense that he was, you know, free from sin. Um, not to say that, you know, there wasn't, he wasn't human, but he was kind of like divinely protected from certain actions. So there's like a pretty, I would say like interesting and subtle understanding of like how the human experience relates to like goodness and I think both of these traditions at least have a strong like current running through them where there's an emphasis on the fact that human beings have do have a moral predisposition, but it can be effectively blotted out via your choice or your circumstances. And so Ibn, Ibn Qayyim, while he says like you need revelation, he kind of also admits that fitra is real and it it has a part to play and all of these things kind of they interact in like maybe a dynamic and interesting way and like kind of in accord with the theme of this of this episode it's like not always entirely available to us what what that is the article goes on to say to like kind of summarize his thought that science and philosophy have no moral content spiritually they're empty shells the rational intellect has no power of moral judgment of distinguishing between morally rewarding acts and those that are punishable the intellect, however, does have an innate intelligence called fitra, whose providence can be said to be moral and that it is able to distinguish between good and evil. For the physician philosopher Al-Razi, not Fakhradin Al-Razi, I think, but the other one, the earlier one, right, some four centuries before Ibn al-Qaim, 
This fitra, a power of the rational mind, was what endowed man with the power of prophecy, a potential actualized only by a rare few. For Al Ibn al Qaim, all animals have fitra. Man, at the head of the animal kingdom, has primary fitra, which God gives prophets to deliver his laws. However, once the prophets enunciate the divine laws, man does not immediately recognize the wisdom in them as though they had been hovering in the shadows of fitra somewhere of the mind, waiting for the gentle tug of light or flutter of the prophetic wings. Quite the opposite. Uh, and here's a direct quote. An Arab being asked how it was he knew Muhammad was a prophet, replied uh, that when something was prescribed by the prophet or Quran, mind said, oh, how I wish it were proscribed. <laughs> this is to say that the intellect's inclinations are contradictory to revelation. Ibn al-Qaim leaves the reader hanging as to whether primary fitra is an innate faculty that is as well applicable to natural principles as it is to moral law. That's funny. I, I like that little little anecdote at the end there. That is really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have to say that I can relate to that as a human being. <laughs> yeah, it's just, there is that, that kind of element as well. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that, I feel like this all here... Okay, I'll add one more part, and then we can we can wrap this section up. Hmm. According to Ibn al-Qaim, true Islam neither accepts a fixed and ordered universe operating in predictable cycles through a causal network of effectual relationships from God to grass, nor absolutely rejects it. Conversely, Islam neither rejects nor accepts absolutely al-Ashari's determinist game of cosmic chance whereby the universe as we know it is temporally discontinuous, atomistic, being repeatedly extinguished and divinely recreated in a series of serial flashes beyond human perception, so that God is the direct cause of all events and things, rather than events and things being causes of one another. And he, uh, he goes on to kind of hold to... Um, what I would say is like the pretty standard Islamic account of free will, which is you know, it's it is what it is that he, God has all power, everything is predetermined, but at the same time you can make choices and rationally that might seem quite strange or difficult, but it is essentially, I think it's something that you find pretty much as like the hegemonic viewpoint in Islam, at least Sunni Islam. And I would say it can all, it's typically also understood and is understood uh, in this article as being kind of like illustrative of the Islamic tendency towards the mean that you have on one side the determinists and on the other side the holders for absolute free will. And then you have the path of like the Broadway of Sunni Islam somewhere in the middle. And it's not something that you can easily put into like a discursive explanation. But nonetheless, the reality of it is assented to as being the way that it is and the way that you're supposed to interact with things. And it, it reminds me, Sheikh Faraz Rabani once said, I believe that causes and conditions and effects are like you deal with those because that is the adept that you are supposed to have with God's creation. Like, God has made creation this way, so whether or not you want to think about it as an Ashari or, like, as a more of a, like, Aristotelian-ish rationalist or as something else that's within the boundary 
sort of accepted theological difference of opinion. Um, we are all kind of like practically dealing with life in pretty much the same way. And whether or not we believe, you know, like that our choices are real or whatever, we're still undergoing the like phenomenological experience of life and of seemingly making choices. And, you know, if you want to know the depth to which that can go, I mean, you merely only need to look at the voluminous literatures of like, you know, Sufi help literature, um, or, 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 you know, like we've been talking about any, any of like the Confucian stuff, anything that deals with like the actual conditions of human life and the ways in which kind of like masters themselves and understands themselves better uh like spiritual psychology if you will and that i think the kind of idea is that like that's the more important thing for you to be thinking about and it, it really falls in line with the theme that we've been seeing here so much which is that like the ultimate reality at least for you for me it's not available to you right now and the other things are that kind of greater importance for me in my life and my ultimate end as a human being so i thought his position though was pretty interesting that you know it was at least implicit that by denying neither school of thought both were kind of like at least insofar as they don't contradict anything that's held to be certain like permissible yeah yeah that that is interesting i mean one thing that that really struck me in Sherman Jackson's uh, book, sorry, Islam and the Problem of Black Suffering, is the, yeah. is the one which which does <laughs> the patent switch, which has has an introduction about you know the the uh, problem the, the theological problem presented by intergenerational slavery in the U.S. and then goes on to be like a thorough kind of exposition of how you would solve theodicy, any theodicy, right? Not just not just this racial issue in each one of the traditional schools of Islamic theology or philosophy and his his section on on ibn taymiyyah uh is really fascinating you know and one of the things that that he points out is that ibn taymiyyah actually advances this position about like existence having intermeshing properties that allow them to have causal efficacy that are like grants of causal efficacy that are given to existence and specify the way in which they are uh, able to interact with other existence, right? So you, I mean, there's a lot of directions that could have been taken, you know, and it's interesting to see that like Ibn Ibn Taymiyyah and and his student Imam al-Jazia are both kind of arguing for like, not at all an abandonment of causal reasoning, nor uh, this kind of like derationalization of philosophy or natural science, but rather sort of like a tempered and measured approach that actually is moving toward a more developed kind of uh, causal position than was present in the in the Ashari school, but uh, nonetheless is is pessimistic, right? Is understands that you know by definition any such explanation that you uh, would offer as a as a particular human under particular circumstances is going to be flawed right and you're not you're not going to attain to you know whatever the the truth is about the uh, that particular instance or or you know whatever data set you happen to have right i think it uh, another place where I, it's interesting to me to see kind of how understandings are sort of divergent 
like the idea of essences or whatever has um like a particular western pedigree that you could say would be like plato had a position on essence aristotle had another position on essence and so on um the idea undergoes a lot of shifts uh reformulations and whatever and you i don't think that i would say there's an exact parallel in say like the school of the way or like the Jushi school of Confucianism and what ended up kind of being inspired primarily by him and his teachers. But nonetheless, there is a kind of... What we saw in Shin Kuo, which was that there are things which are... They have reality, and they have a reality that could be said to be greater than reality of like physical things that we see, because physical things are made up of the admixture of both of them, you know, the Li and the Qi, that... It's clear to me when we're talking about that, we're not talking about mental abstraction as such. Because right. those really, like, whether or not you think about them, it doesn't really matter. Like, you could kind of go through your whole life, and I'm sure that, like, 99.99% of Chinese peasants who ever lived went through their lives not thinking that much about the Li and the Qi. So... There is ascension which like these things are not reliant on being like rational abstractions that are subsuming particulars underneath universals, like this very kind of Aristotelian, Kantian sort of thing. This is something else entirely. It's I mean you could just say it's just like Eastern metaphysic. Uh it's kind of undertaken a different way. It talks about a different order of reality. And I think that when we talk about like is there an idea of essence in Islam, one that's maybe distinct from the philosopher uh, kind of doing an Aristotelian thing? And I think that you could say, like, yeah, you could analogically say that there's something that has, it's like an analogy maybe for essence as we understand it in like Occidental philosophy, but perhaps similarly to what's going on in China, when you're talking about things at that level, it's not we're not saying that like the essence of man is thinking animal you know what i mean we're saying that like there are fundamental levels of existence that are beyond like the apparent and perhaps some access to them is available to like the saints or sages or whatever some of that comes down to us but by and large it's not extremely important for those of us who are like myself pretty undeveloped and sad miserable things um to dwell on and i think this is kind of the explanation for the fact that there is these large bodies of knowledge and things that are made for like regular people like me and that there are other levels of knowledge which might be more rarefied or more elite discourses which typically you're not encouraged to take part in if you're not at that level because you wouldn't be able to obtain like attain to understanding of it and you know it, whatever its purposes are for like i can't really ap i can't apprehend that yet because i'm at like a different stage and i think that you find this maybe you find it in islam certainly i'm i also say you find it in like chinese stuff as well that there's like particularities to the level of human development which kind of prescribe what they should know and what they should be doing with that knowledge so i think this kind of not entirely, but it's kind of in distinction to, it's definitely to the modern Western idea of like what knowledge is 
where everyone has a brain. If it's explained to you enough, you'll understand it because you have a brain. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, for sure. Whereas it really just, our understanding of knowledge is that there's no like phenomenological ethical component to it whatsoever. No experiential, at least not in this way. It's like we were saying with Shin Kuo, like he was saying something that's really relevant and really meaningful to a lot of problems like epistemic and otherwise today. But how many people from like, like the Western kind of, from a Western mode of thought could read him and like immediately grasp what he was trying to do without kind of having immediate recourse to like this fuzzy Chinese mystical stuff, you know, like that kind of understanding, which would completely bar you from actually grasping the meaning of, of what was going on there. There's just sort of an inability to deal with like the aphoristic or people who understood that language does not map one-to-one onto reality and thus used it appropriately. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I I mean, I think, you know, um, maybe just to bring this back to Rescher's book, uh, Cognitive Harmony, you know, that his, his like major kind of thrust in that book is that the decisions that you make about um, you know ontology or epistemology uh, in what seem to be like restricted local areas have consequences for your entire uh, you know worldview or outlook um, as well as your ethics right so it's it's definitely not true that you know you can um, learn, let's say, uh, about um, like uh, the Copenhagen interpretation of uh, quantum physics, and accept that as being something—a body of knowledge that describes actual existence and like actual processes in the world. This is what's going on, right? Like wave function collapse is what determines, uh, on some level or another, the outcome of events. You know that that has deep implications for the ethical content of your life and the cultural and political and economic contents of your life, right? Like, you know, if you look at our society, it's it's deeply structured by this idea that like, you know, things just kind of randomly happen and, you know, the, the luck of the draw is the way things actually are, you know, and that this is this is not a way of expressing uncertainty nor, you know, like actually encoding how much knowledge we have about something, but rather describes the way things actually are. And, you know, I mean, it's the 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 most common kind of like glib atheist, you know, 20 year old depressoid, not to criticize, you know, been there, done this, right? Like kind of position that you're going to take is like, okay, well, I, I don't, I don't need to deal with metaphysics and I don't need to deal with any of this because things just happen randomly, right? Like I don't require deep explanations um, that would uh, actually compel me to seek cognitive harmony, right? To seek unity across uh, these different kinds of fields in a way that's going to like not only be successful, you know, in this world, in the next world, whatever it is, but to have a, a, an operational effect on your on your soul, on your psyche, right? Um, and it's going to do something to you. 
you know, like it's it really is. Uh, and like I mean, we talk uh, fairly routinely about you know like mathematical education and stuff like this because both of us have been very frustrated with it at different times. And like this, this absolutely is symptomatic, right? Where it's just kind of like it doesn't really matter how you learn math. Like you're just going to learn this kind of like this this sequence of topics that have been more or less carefully selected in order to produce. Uh, aerospace engineers, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, you know, the, the the point is to is to make more Lockheed Martin engineers. Like, it's it's not to, um, you know, uh, have have an effect on people in general that is salutary for their, uh, you know, overall flourishing. Right? That's that's not the point. So you, you know, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this is probably been one of the most helpful kinds of aspects of, of you know, both uh, the Islamic and, and you know, classical Chinese traditions for, for the both of us is kind of kind of opening our eyes a little bit to like, okay, if, if you don't have a broader perspective in, in terms of how this all fits in and what you're not saying, right, what's hidden, um, uh, what's unmeasurable, you know, all of these kinds of things, what could be unmeasurable, I mean, obviously you don't know exactly what's there. If you don't do those things, then that has an effect on like your well-being. Like it can make you sick. I know you. Like I've been sick because of my uh, defective causal reasoning about the world, right? Like oh yeah, this is just all. It's all about like reproduction and like this is all just kind of this meaningless series of events that like you know basically is driven by a series of like maximization functions which intend to ultimately, you know, just cause my genetic material to proliferate at the expense of other people's or, you know, whatever it is, right? Like this, this kind of, you know, this is one of the things that Adam Curtis gets, gets at with like game theory and with like particular views about ecology, about what life is about. Like these have like really severe consequences, particularly when like, you know, people who are not in a position to critique the contents of these theories, right? It's the science. It's capital T, capital S, the science. You know, and these days you you can't dissent, right? Like, or you're you're cancelled. You're done. So, I mean, at least in certain social milieus. Um, but you know, that that kind of uh, attitude means that people have they don't even get a choice over like the operations that are being done on their psyche by these like ostensibly neutral kinds of models that they're assimilating as like the way things are and not you know epistemic constructs these are not artifacts or they're not being presented as like artifacts of of human thought right like it's it involves mathematics well it involves discretization it's not a you know, a direct mapping onto a continuous reality. I guess the Asheris would, the Asheris would say, "Well, reality's not continuous, so that's your problem." <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, we can. I, I think we can definitely say that for for the both of us. I mean, this is an extremely important point, right? Like that your um, your commitments with regard to. Even your your you know supposedly neutral scientific ontology are going to have direct effects on what kind of a society you live in, what kind of a family you have, what kinds of decisions you're making, uh, and what kinds of goods you're actually able to obtain. With you know, like it doesn't matter how good your models are, if what your models are doing to you is making you sick, then you're you're simply not going to be able to predict and control phenomena in a way that produces benefits for others. Right. 
Right, and I think that it also can feed the other way. One of uh, Dr. Sherman Jackson's, uh, I think, great points was about the structures of plausibility idea that when the things like in your social world or like even, you know, social and other kind of related things, when those sort of reinforce a, a Weltanschauung, I guess you can say, it becomes that much easier to like embody it. And this is kind of, this is like really, I think, one of the major concern ideas these days and prior is what's the function of society? It's to make the good life possible or whatever. It's to make virtue possible. If you're like a Christian or whatever, then it's like to make attaining salvation possible, like, or at least more probable. And there is, at least in that worldview, I think a deep understanding of the fact that like, if society is constituted around certain values, then they become self-evident and the things in that society, or it's like Heidegger saying that like, art is what a society valued the most. You find it in the art and the way that the art is. Um, And those things, like as much as your mental uh, framework kind of is how you're gonna deal with the world on every level, so too does the world kind of send back into you its contents and you mirror it as well in a kind of dual motion sort of thing. And I think that when we, because we often say like, well, you know, when I was just, as we've said, like a callow atheist, um, it always seemed like, you know, I want to believe, but it's just so hard because of the cold of rationality has dispelled from our lives this like, comforting illusions of faith and I think that that's how people really thought about it but the freedom from that came realizing how like contextual that is like how socially specific that is how socially informed that is and like you start to ask like well you know would I feel this way if I didn't live in a society like dominated by greed and pornography? Like maybe not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it were, you know, I mean, if I travel back in time and murdered HBO, yeah. <laughs> you know, like would that would that be as available to everyone uh, if he if he hadn't written what he'd written? And you know, I I like those stories and everything, but it's it's a, a, a I think a, an example of the, the these plausibility frameworks that you're talking about right you have these these matrices of sort of aesthetic as well as um, intellectual experiences that come together and enable or preclude states of being right not just behaviors but like states that you're going to internalize and that build on one another in in a progression towards a talos right like we yeah i mean we we have a society that's like almost built to stunt that from happening right like you will you will have a stunted psyche um if you if you just kind of were to mainline dark minimalist kind of atheism that you know nonetheless kind of always fails to be able to remove the self from the picture right like you you're still you're still like in your in your death you're imagining the world uh, without you by like you know flying around in a disembodied camera like after after you've been killed in a yeah. video game right <laughs> like you're you're just looking at everything like yeah it's uh um maybe we can we can briefly touch on a little bit of something from Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue it might just open this up a little bit more because we've spent 
a lot of time on like natural science and mathematics as it relates to like ethics we'll say right but they're like a big part of we'll say the modern project has been the direct application of principles from physics and engineering applied directly to the social world um i've got a few like serps from after virtues chapter about this particular thing uh social science um, McIntyre writes, as the functions of modern states become more and more the same, their civil services likewise. While political masters come and go, civil servants maintain the administrative continuity of government and thus confer on government much of its character. The major justification for government intervention in society is the contention that the government has resources of competence which most citizens do not possess. Um, that competence is essentially like the government is staffed by people trained sociologically in some way. They've got a Weberian expertise in like bureaucratic management and like some form of sociological understanding of society. Um, so he goes on, he like says, you know, here I've got four like greatly lauded social scientific generalizations. Um, let's talk about some things about them. And one is that they lack universal quantifiers and scope modifiers, meaning they are not genuinely of the form for all X and some Y. If X has property A, then Y has property B. We also cannot say under which conditions they hold. We also have no way to apply them systematically beyond the limits of observation to unobserved or hypothetical instances, which is like Baconian science induction. Um, you cannot take some kind of set of generalizations of the social world and when you will we'll say when you apply them you have equally as much success as the astrologers and that maybe ought to tell you something about the social scientific enterprise um so then there's a counterclaim well these aren't that these are probabilistic realizations but mcintyre says the claim that they are probabilistic generalizations misses the point Probabilistic generalizations in natural science possess universal quantifiers. Quantification is over sets, not over individuals. They entail well-defined sets of counterfactual conditionals, and they are refuted by counterexamples in the same way as other law-like generalizations. Um, which, like, so fame, you know, I think he says that pretty much any social scientific generalization like every single one more than likely has some kind of established counterexample. And even some of the most famous and heavily cited of these generalizations are like the bedrock of much later sociological work. Despite having numerous attendant counterexamples that has not really shaken their importance whatsoever in the field. And like, how, how are we to understand this, um, this enterprise? And he goes through some stuff about like Machiavelli and fortune and whatever. And if you're interested in that, you can listen to uh, the podcast Exhaust, where I talk about that in a little bit more detail with our friend Emmett. But for the purposes of this podcast, um, he moves into game theory and he basically says, like, here's the thing game theory, um, games, examples in books about game theory. Like those always contain a determinate set of players and like a determinate area of play, like some mixture of those things. And so 
you have like pieces and terrain to reason about in a way that is complexity is not like greater than your mind's capability of encompassing to some extent um, whereas in real life obviously at the outset there is no determinate innumerable set of factors the totality of which comprise the situation to suppose otherwise is to confuse a retrospective standpoint with a prospective one and he has a great example of like when people play Gettysburg war games um, it's like very easy for the confederates to win <laughs> because the confederate player knows that he's fighting Gettysburg he knows like troop dispositions the coming of reinforcements you know like all these things are known to him he has a retrospective view of the battle of Gettysburg and thus he can make the right decisions right however the idea is that probably like Robert E. Lee would be a better general than that guy in any real life context so why did Robert E. Lee fail and the answer is that Robert E. Lee was not fighting the battle of Gettysburg he was just in like a real life situation yeah right um, right which all of this essentially points to there's kind of an underlying reality conflation which I think has kind of been the subtext of our entire talk which is that we develop mental models they might be better or worse um, particularly if we're trying to talk about the political and social worlds our mental models are always going to be beset by the fact that they can never incorporate the totality of causes and conditions which would allow us to have certainty of prediction which you know amazingly is something we just heard from like three different medieval islamic thinkers <laughs> which i felt like so this is kind of where it all came together for me and i, I was kind of surprised like that you know all of the fatwa on astrology just so happened to be like extremely relevant to talking about like social scientific modeling um and in a way, to the extent that social scientific modeling, modeling wants to like arrogate to itself predictive power and like social authority on, on that basis, I would say that like every single criticism epistemically of astrology is as applicable to this more in certain ways. Yeah, I, I think in particular, you know, this idea that, okay, it, it's not even that these um, explanations are not addressing causes that have effects on the system that you're interested in. It's that your model is so um, underspecified that if it's right, it's it's by accident, yeah. right? Like it's it's just not like the the actual system is is way too complicated. I mean, I I, I honestly don't know how I feel about that today. I remember reading after virtue and that that just like not not striking me as like having any any problems with it you know what what i would say about it is that even if you are kind of let's say more optimistic about the ability of you know advanced statistics to produce good explanations or models of human like political economic systems whatever it is the i almost like all of the models that are in use have not really been tested against alternatives in a way that would enable you to measure the evidence from a, a like a Bayesian perspective. You would want to know what the model evidence is for 
you know, your these models, given given what we're talking about, right? Like, so he's talking about counterexamples. I mean, like, you know, I think we'll come back to this. I think this is this is going to lead into at least a couple episodes. But um, you know, I, I think what Feyerabend, the the philosopher of science, Feyerabend would say about about this is that you know, it's not remarkable that these explanations have counterexamples in the data, right? Like all all scientific explanations ignore things that are inconvenient for the explanation, um, and and you have to, or otherwise, like you you're just going to have explanatory chaos. Um, there are just way too many different data sets that were generated under different presumptions and so on and so forth. But I mean, like, you know, from a Bayesian perspective, you can still take data that is gives, you know, what seems to be a counterexample to to a model and and assess the the um, likelihood and therefore the model evidence, which is the, the marginal uh, probability of the model over um, all possible parameterizations given that data set. Like you can still calculate this stuff, right? So, I mean, like even if you take that perspective that like, no, you know, it's not that like basically the, like Peter Thiel is an astrologist. Right, like what what Peter Thiel is doing is astrology. We could say that's that's a claim that we might make, you know, on the basis of like what we've we've covered here, right? Like the the big data approach to governing society is is not different than this. And I mean, even if you're more optimistic about this, I very much doubt that Peter Thiel is very concerned with assessing the quality of his explanations against you know like simpler alternatives or just completely different alternatives, you know, like, he, he, in other words, he has not tested a whole series of nested models in order to produce, you know, the model that is most in accord with Occam's razor for like finding terrorists or whatever, nor has he, you know, compared different like models of the generation of social violence um, in in some rigorous ways, because that's, that's not what he's doing, right? He's selling a product. So what matters is that like, it meets the, that the, the model output meets the expectations of the customer, which is, you know, the U.S. military, U.S. intelligence services, whatever, um, you know, you can, you can still be optimistic and just say that, like, okay, the, nonetheless, people who are doing this are operating as astrologists because they're not taking the level of rigor that um, I think, you know, if we want to bring it back to this idea of astronomy versus astrology, I mean, the, um, like, astronomical statistics are, are now... Uh, quite advanced, and the the types of model comparison that are happening in astronomy, I think, are more sophisticated and more interesting than in any other field right now. So that that is absolutely not the level that we're meeting in the social science, which is not is not to say that it can't be met, right? Like you can still be kind of a statistical optimist and see the point here. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you that I think that if there is a method by which you can judge your modeling, then that provides some hope for the application of these quantitative methods to like social data of some kind to attempt to like discover something that would then enable you like as a statesman, you know, or something like that to like make a judgment and then make a decision which ultimately becomes some kind of like governmental action. I think that kind of setup is not like the baby and get thrown out with that bathwater because that's really not what McIntyre is talking about and 
Yeah, it's not what's being objected to, I think, by the medieval theologians. It because it obtains to some rigor and is like, in some sense, you could say, I don't know about falsifiable, but like, there's a way of knowing that you might have like better or information, you could say, like, there's a method by which that knowledge could be obtained. And thus, you could at least take some stock of what you're dealing with rather than just kind of like using something that just could be completely awful for whatever you're trying to optimize for you know and like you have a way to know which is something and i i think that like teasing out the differences here which are often so subtle is probably like kind of what's important at least at this stage like what are we talking about and what are we doing and what's the difference between those things um and you know i mean the truth is that like probably hardly anybody who has any societal importance knows much about like bays <laughs> or like you know what i mean like that i don't think that, yeah. that stuff has like taken hold quite yet in the the echelons of like authority and power or anything you know of money at least not not that i've heard of yeah part of the the reason for that you know i mean again to to, to take up a, a firebendian view here the activity of science and of you know philosophy and of art and of magic and all of these kinds of things these these sorts of activities are social activities which inevitably revolve around claims to orthodoxy right because you can think of this in a very kind of like crass materialist way if you want like there's a limited amount of like social resource to kind of supply all of these contending ideologies with you know adherence and and cultural energy and so on and so forth and so there there inevitably is this this kind of contest but I, I mean I think it's just implied by the fact that like humans can conceive of things that are metaphysically contradictory right like you're always going to be bumping into people who are making claims that contradict your particular view of uh, how things are so um, you know if if we take this view where this is primarily to be understood as a social process characterized by by claims to to orthodoxy fire heaven would say well even if you have you know like even if you're you're uh, a bayesian you know and you're offering like a more rigorous rule this still doesn't guarantee that like science is progressive it's not a it doesn't guarantee that what you're doing it uh meets the sort of like popperian or even uh, Baconian view of like the prog uh, progressive uh, nature of, of science, you know. But e even even if we accept that, what what the uh, Bayesian view does force you to do is state what you think you already know, and then to offer an estimate of your uncertainty on the both the the evidence that you're calculating for your model as well as like whatever parameters you think uh, obtain given your data. And the, <laughs> I think the reality is, is that like if you do that habitually, you'll realize that like most data sets don't tell you very much, right? That like, in other words, there are, if, if you, for, for some model, there are many parameterizations that make the data look somewhat uh, likely given that model, right? So you have very wide uncertainties on, you know, what you think the parameters of some system might be, particularly like social systems or whatever, right? So this is this is not 
not congenial at all for making claims to orthodoxy. Right? Mm. Like if if you if if basically the system is set up to to acknowledge this problem, right? That you know, in many cases, you're not going to be learning very much from any particular set of data, and you have wide uncertainty on many of your estimates. And you know, like in many cases, when you compare models, which like you know, many statistical practitioners just don't do, right? Like they they just, uh, they have a model um, and they optimize it against some data set. And they say like, here's the model, here's, here are the parameters of reality, right? But if you if you compare your models, what you find out is that like you have a whole bunch of shitty models. Right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, n- none of many of them can explain aspects of the data, but like none of them are comprehensive. And it comes down to like what your local kinds of needs are in terms of what's actually going to get used. Um, and so you know, yeah, I, I think this is this is a real problem. But I, I think what we can safely say is like something that did that that took a, a stock of its own uh, epistemic limits and kept the focus on the reality that we're always talking about epistemological constructs is at least a less dangerous approach to this kind of causal reasoning from a moral standpoint, right? Like the the imams of old would be more comfortable with a Bayesian approach than with, you know, someone finding uh, the uh, maximum likelihood estimate for a model and saying this is the way it is. Yeah, and that's kind of I think that's sort of been at the heart of maybe you would say like the big conceptual difference between this approach and what we call like a pretty standard approach but also a prevailing common understanding, which is, yeah, like, I know this model isn't, like, totally reality, but, like, it basically is, is maybe how often they're, you know, they're approached when they're uh, set up, and then when they're disseminated to the public, even worse. Um, This is the science, you know, so at least the scientist was like, well, you know, I know this isn't one-for-one reality, maybe they think that, but as soon as it gets into the news, it's completely lost. And we are left kind of like assimilating, you know, really like the waste matter of scientific discourse in a way. Like things that if you entered, say, like the physics department or something, things that might have been cast away, you know, sort of recently as like ideas that no longer hold are going to remain in the public consciousness for much much longer even though it turns out that they were always kind of like phantasmic in terms of their reality and so it's like we're just gobbling up this waste that they produce that we have no way of like intellectually dealing with except to kind of buy into it wholesale as somehow like a true scientifically justified explanation of things which we then like triangulate off of if not in making our decisions then at least in justifying them after the fact Um, and then it turns out that none of that was ever real or meant anything but then we get a whole new set of things which is like surprise going to be just the same thing and this social process kind of like goes on ad infinitum seemingly without any end in sight and I think that it's probably pretty correct to like lay a lot of the blame for that at the kind of like epistemic arrogance of a lot of statistics as it is practiced these days and the lack of yep. any kind of rigorous method of obtaining to like the humility, which, you know, like all people doing statistics should cry out with Shen Kuo that they, <laughs> these are merely crude traces 
when you look at your that's data, right. you say, this is a crude trace. <laughs> that's right. Get him, Shen Kuo. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, maybe um, maybe we'll kind of wrap up there. I, I think we, we kind of laid out the some of the bits and pieces I, I think that we want to come back to in, in different ways here. And and really, you know, I think it is important to get get at this social process because you have you have no choice, right? Like if if you want to be able, I mean, even even just personally, like, you know, OK, I have um, some experiments I'm doing in my basement, right? Like if, if you want those you know, little kinds of contributions that you're making to have an effect, you really have to take this seriously, right? Because it's in order to make a claim to orthodoxy, right, which is ultimately what we we need to do here to kind of unseat, you know, not not us personally, but like someone, (laughs) someone out there, (laughs) someone is, is, is going to be doing this at some point, right, is, is going to be overturning this social commitment that we have uh, in one way or another. And they're they're going to need to incorporate like a, a quantitative element to this, this argument, right? Like it just, nobody cares about anything that, that doesn't make some reference to measurement. And, you know, maybe good reasons for that like we can talk about the extent to which measurement is kind of like a foundational aspect of, of civilization governance um, to begin with um, but yeah like I, I think it's just I don't know I mean I for me anyways I, I, I would just end with kind of like uh, just just a reminder that's like the origin of the term statistics is from state right like these are again we're not we're not even really concerned maybe necessarily with like the beliefs of individual scientists or individual people although that does have like you know cultural effects but ultimately like the the decisions that are being made now are being made you know that affect us all are being made by very few people they're being made on the basis of quantitative models and those models have not been compared to alternatives in general right so this is this is a big problem that we're all going to be dealing with particularly in the in the covid context for years and years and years and years and if we don't wrap our heads around this like there's just no telling how um scary this really could become yeah we'll have to sadly cry out the true science has died <laughs> if, if that if something doesn't really change in that sphere because I think you could say like well at least like the mirror or whatever he didn't have that much power right like he just he collected taxes and fought sometimes and then enjoyed his pleasures in the palace or whatever and that kind of thing but like he stayed out of your life for the most part but like in terms of the the modern nation state and its capabilities institutions and like the penetration which it has um is quite a bit different than that and if we consider that they're being advised by people who might be likened to astrologers you know that should be a little concerning i think and i think maybe even that framing you could really cause some concern and consternation even among most hardened kind of atheist rationalist because they don't particularly care for astrology either <laughs> yeah yeah and i probably in the in the spirit of scientific 
ecumenicalism. I mean, I, I think everyone recognizes that, like, you know, you don't necessarily want to give uh, uh, an explanation with an, an explicitly theological background. Like, it's kind of, like, be, being an Ashari kind of implies being rude if you're a scientist, <laughs> right? Because, like, anytime someone asks you, what, you know, how does something happen? What's going on? It's just like, well, God's doing it. Just shut up, right? Like, you know, so, so you know, uh, hopefully, any any kind of um, improvement that might be offered would be acceptable, um, irrespective of of your uh, uh, metaphysical commitments. Yeah, which at least we can admit that they exist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they right, might have right. some meaning, but you know yeah. that can be that can be discussed at its appropriate like, level and in its appropriate sphere in this kind of like ideal future we might imagine, where. Where knowledge like somehow takes on a better form societally than it has hitherto. I mean, we didn't really get a chance to go into it, and it's sort it's like marginally applicable, but it's kind of like Kantbot's soapbox for the past while has been like similar stuff in terms of reality model conflation. But I think he really hones the aspects of the fact that we like have really reified ideas of like society and um the world economy as less like real object you know that has some kind of like independent reality or like the abstraction of like individual like things that creates that up somehow like they're the same thing and it's real or whatever and how this is I would say to the right I don't I can't say for sure. I haven't thought enough about it or whatever, or like read enough of what he has looked at. Um, but to the extent that he's right, it's likely because of what we're talking about, or like that they're like very intimately related, like these processes of social reasoning, um, having kind of continually grown in the context of like the total state, if you will, um, which seeks kind of like we could say a uh, completely hubristic level of control and like um, command of things and that whatever ends that might have been originally like meant to point toward like now it's kind of just in service of like global wealth transfers like to the people who have kind of been that for like the past hundred or so years you know like looking at the trajectory of like the modern state project and like who kind of makes up its upper echelon who makes the decisions and things like that all has some relationship um which you know i think like just say like similar to trying to tease this out uh, established differences where there are some distinctions where they may be necessary um, it doesn't just have bearing, I guess, on like the world of science, even insofar as that has bearing on the world of governance directly in that they kind of rely on some form of statistical expertise to make decisions, but also like, you know, our very idea of like what the world is, the society is, the things like that, like how that all is and the way in which those ideas kind of serve as like self-justifications for their continuance no matter what, um, you know, also is kind of like related to this in the, th- in the sense that I think Rescher would say it's all 
it's all like one thing or at least it's all feeding into each other whether you like it or not like even though you've committed yourself to some small subset of things thinking on and you kind of hope that you can just make that perfect and not worry about other stuff and some like you know like those walls will not stand because everything is kind of like informing everything else when you talk about systems of knowledge yeah, I, I think that's that's right on, right? Like, you know, lots of us thought we were just studying physical science, but, you know, the, the, the material implied our own cage, you know, and we, we just couldn't couldn't apprehend that until, you know, now we're living in it. Uh, it's very obvious, you, you know, the, the way that this um, is, is coming to pass now. Um, and, you know, I think I think probably um, the, the term might be uh, biopolitical, you know, the, the biopolitical uh, ramifications um, of, of this kind of thinking, of this kind of uh, causal explanation user. Um, and uh, yeah, we have to, we've got to stop them, we've got to combat them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, from our, our little uh, garden redoubt here, um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll hopefully be be outlining some more um, thoughts uh, along that in uh, in this marginal form by two uh, marginal thinkers. Um, so thank you very much uh, for joining us. This is some marginalia. Hi ho, hi ho, hi ho, hi ho, hi ho, hi ho. Hi-ho, hi-ho, oh our Lord, let us look in the pages of your book. Hi-ho, 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 times of knife, sin and strife is the message of my life. Hi-ho, 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 angels high in the sky makes me see God when I die. Hi-ho, hi-ho. Hi-ho, hi-ho, years go by, I cry and sigh for the sins that I live by. Hi-ho, 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 hills and trees on their knees, praising God, taking their wreaths. Hi-ho, 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 birds that fly, days go by, help me use my spirit's eye. Hi-ho, hi-ho. Hi-ho, hi-ho, lonely lands, raise your hands, praise the Lord who understands. Hi-ho, 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 sky and tent, deep content, praise the prophet God has sent. Hi-ho, 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 heaven got to die one more time, he is watching, sees my crime. Hi-ho, hi-ho. Hi-ho, hi-ho, a long straight road, a mountain load, a pray just where my spirit flowed. Hi-ho, 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 wandering free, cottonwood tree, mountain sky, no door and key. Hi-ho, 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 no child or wife in my life, tent and pegs and hunting knife. Hi-ho, hi-ho. Hi-ho, hi-ho, hill and stone, skin and bone, coyote howling all alone. Hi-ho, 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 
Lord, this air's filled with prayers. I breathe your name, forget my cares. Hi ho, hi ho, hi ho, hi ho. When I'm done, the setting sun will still tell me that you are one. Hi ho, hi ho. Hi-ho, hi-ho, I'll be a slave in my grave, a dead man now don't misbehave. Hi-ho, 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 Lord, I cry beneath your sky, keep me faithful when I die. Hi-ho, 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 hi-ho.